Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, John is a very dear friend to me, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed and honored to be able to preach at his church. That's not something he gives away lightly, so I'm honored. If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I want you to invite I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 116. If you don't, there's Bibles here available. Um, and if you don't own one, please, please take it home with you. It's a gift uh, from us to you. I want to begin this morning by talking about music, specifically uh, a melody. For anyone who's not a musician here, uh, a melody is simply the tune of a song, and it's really in a song, it's the main entity, and it characterizes the whole thing. We can often remember a song just by its melody. Many melodies are so familiar, in fact, that I bet I can begin one, and in just a few moments, you're going to know exactly what the song is. So, for some crowd participation... Let's try this. Um, and I apologize for being off tune. <laughs> you ready? Dun, 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 dun. Perfect. Let's try this one. Dun, 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 dun. Excellent. Okay, now this last one. See if you can get it. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so I do that because you can see just how, like you didn't know what was coming. You didn't know the song I was going to sing the tune of. And you get it in seconds. That's how powerful melodies are. A few notes in succession and you already know the song. A melody really is an incredible thing when you think about it. It's characteristic, it's unique, it's telling, and it's quite memorable. But you might ask, what does that have to do with the Bible and this morning's passage for that matter? Well, you could say that the Christian life is a song and it has a melody. The melody is the primary tune, if you will, of the Christian life. It's the main entity. It characterizes the whole, and it's completely unique. There is only one melody of the Christian life, and it's unmistakable. I've titled this sermon this morning, The Song of the Redeemed, Radical Love for God as the Melody of the Christian Life. The song of the redeemed, radical love for God is the melody of the Christian life. As I mentioned, our text this morning is Psalm 116. It's a song of love for God. In it, we'll see how the psalmist is overwhelmed with the redeeming grace of God. The song is an outpouring of adoration and love. If you're in Christ this morning, if you truly know Jesus, listen carefully and you'll find that this psalm doesn't just describe the psalmist. If you're in Christ, this song describes you. 
this song is the song of all those who are redeemed. And in this song, we're going to see a beautiful relationship develop. It's a relationship around the reality of worship. We'll see the cause of worship and the character of worship. We're going to see the driving reason behind worship, why it exists. And we're going to see what worship looks like. The resulting sound of these two primary notes, the cause and the character, will give us the melody of the Christian life. And for those of you who know Christ, you will see that this song, that you know it by heart. It's a song you know from personal experience. Its rhythm is your heartbeat. Its notes resonate with your own soul. Its music is sweet to your ears and at home, I just, I'm still on? Okay. Uh, Its music is sweet to your ears and at home in your heart. You know this song. The melody is all too familiar and the lyrics are your own. So if you're in Christ, this is your song. Now here's the thing. This, the melody in this song is utterly unique. It's not what you might expect from the world's perspective. You see, worship has a certain sound to it. A certain melody, a very distinct and unique melody There's no other song in the world like it. Genuine Christian worship must have the right melody. Like any normal song, the melody is off, the song is wrong. And if in Christian life the melody is wrong, the worship is wrong, and it is not pleasing to God. So there is a right way to worship God. But I wonder, for many of you, it may not be what you think. How are we to worship him? What pleases God? Now, if I said, to worship and please God, you need to do good to others, give to the poor, read your Bible, go to church, pray. But above all, what God desires from us is obedience to his word. He wants us to obey him. And that's how you please and worship God. What do you think? Do you think that's correct? Those things are in the Bible, absolutely. But let me submit to you that that's, if that's your whole answer, then it's wrong. It's missing something vital. If each of those things I mentioned doesn't have behind them, and each, if each of those things are not rooted in or do not contain this absolutely essential ingredient, then the whole thing is dead. The melody's wrong and it's dead worship to God. Those things in themselves will not please him. There is only one ingredient that is absolutely necessary to please God. Without it, every effort is in vain. Psalm 116, I think, is going to show us what that essential ingredient is. We need it. Are you ready for it this morning? Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice 
and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So, like I mentioned this morning, we're going to be seeing how radical love for God is the melody of the Christian life. And to do that, first we need to understand the cause of worship. So I've titled the first point, Grace-Filled Redemption, the cause of worship. Grace-filled redemption, the cause of worship. So let's take a look at the text, verse 1. The first thing you'll notice is that this psalm is an outpouring of love and adoration. It, it's like the psalm just kind of explodes off the start where he says, I love the Lord. The psalmist begins with a passionate declaration of his love for God. It's quite incredible. These words, I love the Lord, occur twice in all 150 psalms. You would expect, I would, that you would see it a lot more frequently, but you don't. And the specific word that he uses for love here is unique in all the psalms. So already this psalm is being set apart in a special way by the way he opens it. Now you might ask, appropriately so, what would cause such an outburst, such a powerful declaration of love, especially one so unique in all the psalms? That's a really good question. It asks for the cause. Why? What's the reason behind the psalmist's love? Well, you see, he gives it here. I love the Lord because, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. So there it is. He gives the reason. It's quite simple. He cried out, and pled for mercy, and the Lord listened. This is the reason for his outburst of love. But let's keep going. What was, what was the problem here? Why was he crying out? Verse 3, 
The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Now, I know, even speaking personally, that when you read texts like this, it's easy to just sort of pass over the words and not internalize and empathize even with what the psalmist is saying. So if you let his words sink in, it begins to give us a a sense of his need. The snares of death, the pangs of Sheol, distress and anguish. Do you hear it? He's at the brink of death. Destruction is upon him. He's terrified for his life. He feels lost and without hope. You can hear his cry and his pain and his anguish. His affliction was terribly great. If you're imaginative, you can imagine the tears and the stumbling and the pleading, the feelings of hopelessness. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt anguish and hopelessness? I think many of us have at various points in our life, and it's a real struggle. We can identify. Listen to verse 8. He said, you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Verses 10 and 11 give us more insight. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Perhaps it was a relational struggle, maybe betrayal. Whatever the circumstances Of this we can be sure. He is in distress and real agony. So I ask again, have you ever felt like this? Have you felt such distress and pain, physical or emotional or spiritual? Have you ever felt death and destruction, as it were, crouching at your door like a roaring lion poised, waiting for the kill? Feelings of hopelessness where you're the prey and there's nothing that you can do. Life is happening and it is out of control. Have you ever experienced this? Maybe you have, but listen. If you're in Christ, then the lyrics of this song should begin to sound familiar. Before Christ, this was your condition, wasn't it? Distress, agony, hopelessness, real hopelessness. Listen to these scriptures, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This was our state apart from Christ. The wrath of God remained on us. Remained. Not moving, not leaving. Death at the door. We have sinned against God and earned his wrath. 
We earned it by our wickedness. His wrath for sin is a just wrath. It's a fitting, appropriate wrath. It is a holy wrath. It is right that his wrath be on sin. That is not God being mean. That is God being just. Our state, apart from Christ, is in fact far more horrific and desperate than any of us really comprehend. These words are, are not uh, exaggerations, they're accurate. And we need to shepherd our hearts and, and listen and uh, embrace the reality so that we can come closer to understanding how significant our sin truly is. So as a help, listen to these words from Jonathan Edwards as he describes God's just and right anger for sin and for sinners. They're heavy words, and, and they tend to make us wonder, was it really that significant? But it is. So listen as I read. And yeah, they're on the screen behind me. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Lest you think his assessment too severe for sin and God's holiness. Listen to scripture. Psalm 5 says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And you know, we're quick, we're quick in our Canadian or North American attitude to say, oh, no, God doesn't hate sin that much. He doesn't hate sinners. This is the Bible, okay? Scripture says the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Proverbs says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Romans says that for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury wrath and fury. 
It's a terrifying and very real reality. It's the condition of all those who are not covered by the blood of Christ. Romans clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. This was the condition of all those apart from Christ. We must not ignore that God is absolutely holy and he abhors evil. He cannot endure it. Wrath and fury are being stored up against all the ungodly. If you're in Christ, this was your condition. You, like the psalmist, were past tense at the gates of death without hope, only God's wrath awaiting you. That was our state. It's not fictional, it's real. So you, if you're in Christ, you can identify now with this part of the song. But for some of you in this room, you may still be in that state. If you do not belong to Jesus, then the wrath of God does remain on you. And apart from Jesus, you have no hope. Every moment that death and judgment are delayed is another moment of pure mercy for you to cry out to God. So we see here in Psalm 116, this is what the psalmist does. It's what I hope you've done. He cries out for mercy. Now, why mercy? Because he knows that he doesn't deserve God's kindness. Here we see the melody of the gospel unfolding. And wonder of wonders, God answers him. God answers the psalmist's plea for mercy. He answers our plea for mercy. We cry out to God for mercy and rescue. We cry out for him to redeem us from the pit, and he answers. This is the gospel. There are hardly any words to describe or express such a wonder of grace. Verses 5 to 9, he says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you, now he's speaking to God, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is pure grace. Do you see it in verse 5? Gracious, righteous, merciful. Why? We deserve wrath, do we not? But he shows us mercy. We deserve wrath, but he gives us grace. We deserve wrath, but he is also righteous. Don't miss that the psalmist listed that among the three. He is righteous. But how does that work then? His righteousness, as we've seen, demands that he deal with sin. He's holy. He cannot overlook it. 
It demands he punish iniquity. How can he offer mercy and grace and still be righteous? You see the conundrum here. Three words that don't work together in themselves. But enter Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, Christ, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. He came to rescue. He came to save. He came to redeem. He came to bear our sins in his body, in agony on the tree. He came to die in our place. He came to bear that wrath that was reserved for me. John 3.36, the wrath of God that remained on me. He came to bear that wrath. He came to satisfy God's justice. He came to give his life so that we could have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the reason there's mercy and grace. Jesus Christ is the reason we can have eternal life. He is the reason the psalmist can say, I love the Lord. Jesus Christ is the reason all believers can say, I love the Lord. Grace-filled redemption in Jesus Christ is the reason we worship. Grace-filled redemption in Jesus Christ is the reason we worship. It's the reason we love him. It's the cause of our worship. Now that sets the foundation for the remainder of the passage. And we come now to verse 12. And it's quite an incredible turn. So having just come from this explosive testimony of redemption, we face an immense problem. We just saw how the psalmist's heart has exploded in declaring his love for God, but now he faces this massive dilemma. And this brings us to the second point of the message. Faith-filled rapture, the character of Christian worship. Faith-filled rapture, the character of Christian worship. By rapture, I don't mean disappearing and going to heaven. Uh, the, other, the dictionary also defines it as a feeling of intense pleasure or joy. And that's what I mean here by the word rapture. It's near identical to what we would in English call radical love. My aim here now is to show you the character of worship. We just spent the last time talking about the cause of worship. And now we'll be looking at the character of worship, namely radical, faith-filled love for God as the only fitting response to all that he's done. So in our text, we see the psalmist is faced with this dilemma, this question of questions, if you will. And he asks it, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I'll say it again. What, what shall I render? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Here's what he's saying. Truly, in light of all that God has done for me, what 
shall I render to him? Oh, how I love him. How then shall my soul respond? What can I give my God, my Redeemer? What can I possibly render unto him? What could I possibly give him? Do you feel the weight of that problem? How can I possibly give something of worth back to God for such incredible mercy? And to make matters worse, what do I have that he desires? So let's take a look a little more closely at the problem. We we can see it in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is, do you see it there, not served by human hands. God is not served by human hands. This is a critical theological foundation for us to understand. He is not served by human hands. Now, why is that? You can see at the end, uh, in that verse, at the end of the sentence, he says, since... Or because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not served by human hands because he is the source. Just like the song that we sung, it's your breath in our lungs. That's not our breath that we use to praise him. That's his. He is the source of all life. Let that sink in. Your heart beating is not your own doing. The breath that's in your lungs to praise him is not from you. He's the source of all things. He's the originator. He's the starting point. All things come from him. He gives us life and breath. And in case that doesn't cover the list, Paul adds, and everything. There is no missing part. So can you begin to see the problem? If all that I have is first from him and nothing originates with me, how can I offer something of value back to him? It's from him in the first place. That's like me trying to pay my mortgage bill at the bank with their own money. If you took your bill to the bank, which is rare these days, and you say to the teller, look, I I need to pay my bill, and the issue is I actually, I don't have any, anything. I don't have any money. Um, I'm wondering if I could take out a loan um, from you and pay my bill with that loan. Of course, that doesn't work. That's the reality, though. We're standing in a hole, and the more you borrow, the deeper you dig that hole. You can't climb out because you have 
nothing of your own resources to pay back the lender, so to speak. So it is with God. He is not served by human hands because he himself is the giver. He is the source. This is the problem. We have nothing of our own to offer him. But despite this great problem at hand, the psalmist, he asks the question, but then he proceeds to give an answer to his question. Well, so he, he, he says he knows what the answer is. What could the psalmist possibly say so as to not violate that principle? Scripture is consistent. So how can you pay or render something to God of value to him when you cannot serve him with your own resources? And the answer, of course, that he gives is profound and shocking. I think that this answer is completely antithetical to all human nature. It takes our natural inclinations and wisdom and turns it all on its head. If you recall, we discussed at the beginning of the message when we talked about the melody of the song, we said that genuine Christian worship is unique and it must have the right melody. There's a vital note. Without it, that whole melody is wrong and the worship is dead. It's not pleasing to God. And I brought that up because I think that the psalmist is about to show us what that vital note is. In answer to the question, what shall I render to God? Here he identifies it. But I think the answer comes in two parts. So, part one of the answer. You can see there, verse 12, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. He will lift up the cup of salvation. Now, what is the cup of salvation? The word cup as we see it in Hebrew, signifies the fullness, the fullness of something. We do see it a lot of ways in the Bible, use that as such. For example, some of these will sound familiar, cup of wrath, cup of trembling, cup of salvation, a cup of blessing, cup of the new covenant. All of these things are in reference to fullness. Fullness of wrath, fullness of trembling, fullness of blessing. A cup in Hebrew like this was, depic- was a depiction of fullness. And it's not surprising then, because when you see it in context of verse 12, it actually makes a lot of sense. Think about what just preceded in the prior 11 verses. He's been rescued, he's been saved, he's been redeemed. Salvation is the context here through and through. So when he says cup of salvation, he's referring to the fullness and overflowing abundance that he's just received. He has a cup full of blessing and salvation. It is brimming with the glory of God's rescue. It's a chalice hoisted high above his head to the Lord, full to the brim. In it, he has fullness and abundance of joy and salvation. So, that cup of salvation, that's part one of the answer to the question, what do I render to the Lord? Part one, cup of salvation. But I think its main purpose now is to set the stage for part two of the answer. 
So he lifts up this cup full of blessing and abundance and fullness. What now? He offers up his need. He offers his need. Do you see it? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's his answer to the question. What do I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I'm going to lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. He's just received fullness. Remember, the cup is full. And what's his response? Is his need. More, God, I want more. The psalmist is saying, oh, I love the Lord so much. What could I possibly give to him? How can I give him my love and worship? He is not served by human hands, but I desire so much to give something of worth to him. Here's what I will do. Though my cup is full and brimming over with abundance of salvation, in order to please and honor him, I will call upon his name. I will call upon his name. I will call upon his name. I will offer him my need. I will ask for more still. I will draw more and more and more upon the giver. I will look to him. I will depend on him. In fact, you see it even in verse 2 of this chapter, I'll do it for the rest of my life. I will never stop calling on the name of the Lord. This is how I will worship and demonstrate my love for God. Why is that the answer? How does that work? Why is calling on the name of the Lord the thing we render back to God for all that he's done for us? Why is that the way the psalmist tries to please the Lord? I think the answer is faith. I stand here as doing funny things. Faith is the essential ingredient that we spoke of earlier. It's what makes the Christian melody Christian. It's the one distinct and unique ingredient setting Christianity apart from every other religious system of thought on the planet. Faith is the vital note of the Christian melody and the root of worship. Without faith, you have nothing, absolutely nothing. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, without that essential ingredient in our offerings of worship, it is impossible to please him. That's significant that that text exists. It is not possible. Just let that sink in. It is not possible whatsoever to please God without faith. It can't be emphasized 
enough. In our fallen human natural nature, our tendency is to revert always back to this scheme of payment where I please God based on my performance. When you examine your life and your day-to-day attitude and heart and behavior, if you see your emotions rise and fall on the basis of your performance, that is the opposite of how God asks us to live. It means we're closet legalists. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. The psalmist knew this. He knew, you see it even in the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the essential ingredient because faith receives. Faith, in faith, the essence of faith is receiving. In John 1.12, you can look at that for yourself later, you see that the essence of faith is in receiving. To all those who did receive him, that is, receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because faith, is, in essence, is a receiving grace, faith exalts and magnifies the giver. I'll say that again. Because faith, in its essence, is a receiving grace, Faith exalts and magnifies or makes much of the giver. Faith says to its object, in this case God, you are the fountain. You are the giver. You are my source. You are my hope. I depend on you. I call upon and believe in and trust in you for everything because you only can meet all my needs. So do you see it, how faith makes much of its object? Faith magnifies the source. When you you trust God, you make much of him because you declare him to be trustworthy. You declare him to be sufficient for your rescue. That magnifies him. It's what pleases him. See, God is not magnified when you proceed to try and take matters into your own hands. He is magnified when you put matters into his hands because you show just how great and capable he is and you acknowledge that he is the creator, you are the creature, you depend on him. He is not magnified and honored by you trusting in your own provision. He is magnified when you trust in his provision. God is not glorified by being ignored. He is glorified by being called upon. God is not glorified by being ignored. He is glorified by being called upon. We don't bother God. He is magnified when we call upon his name and put our, all of our burdens into his hands. You don't showcase a strong man's strength 
by telling him to just sit down and relax while you go and attempt to do the impossible. If you want to showcase a person's strength, what do you do? You give them the opportunity to display it, right? That's why we watch sports. (laughs) They get to display their skill. And it's very much the same thing with God. God is the strongest. He is the best. He is the fountain. He is the bread of life. He is the river of living waters. He is the source. We get everything we need from him. And so when we take all our issues and all our sorrows and we put them into his hands and say, look, I trust you. You take care of it. That honors him because it shows how great he is. And it shows that he's the one that you trust. So we make much of him when we trust him to be the source of our strength and life. Therefore, in depending upon and in receiving from him, we glorify him. We give glory and worship to God by depending on and receiving from God. So I hope, I hope that the psalmist's answer is starting to become more clear as to why that's his response. How do I render something of value back to the Lord? I'll call upon his name. I've already received a cup full of salvation and I will continue for the rest of my life to call upon his name. And I'm going to belabor the point. First Peter 4, let's look at that. We see it again here, spelled out, I think, crystal clear. Verse 10, and it's also on the screen. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks by the oracles of God. Whoever serves, here it is. As, the one, as one who serves by the strength that I supply. It's not what it says, Right? You serve by the strength that he supplies. As mysterious as that is, it is his supply. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified. There it is. We serve by the strength that he supplies. We serve by the strength that he supplies. Because when you serve by his strength that he supplies, it's not coming from your own resources. It's your breath in our lungs. And we pour out our praise from him back to him. It's incredible how it works. It's not from your own muscles or your own strength or your own hands. It is from him. He is the source. So when you serve by his strength, he's the supplier. And when he's the supplier and the source, he gets the glory. This is how faith magnifies God. We believe in him and we receive from him. We look to him. We worship him and honor him by that receiving his supply. We glorify him by receiving his provision, not by generating our own. And, since it, and it magnifies his power and his kindness. The psalmist, amazingly, he understood this. That's why he gives the answer he does. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord. He knew the true character of worship. He knew that the righteous shall live by faith. He knew 
that radical, faith-filled love for God was the character of real worship. He knew that the only appropriate gift to render back to God was faith and dependence and calling and receiving because that exalts and pleases God as mighty and powerful and trustworthy and dependable. God is exalted by being magnified for who he is and we display his power and worth when we depend upon him that's our response that's how we worship so never ever see worship as something that you come and somehow give to God every time we come to worship it is first receiving we can't even begin to praise without having something to praise him for which is what he has supplied namely our salvation. It all comes from him. And our, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's worth restating that our, our carnal, fleshly, natural attitude is to reverse that. Day to day, we wake up with the mentality that we please God by our performance. Paul wrote a whole letter to a church because they couldn't figure that out. Galatians. So, let, if, you, if you remember anything from this sermon, remember that our worship to God is by calling on his name, receiving from him. You might be asking yourself, okay, then how exactly do I do that? How do I do this kind of faith? Well, I think it's really quite plain in a sense. It's complex, but it's also simple. We lift up our voice to God. Give yourself to fervent prayer. Get on your knees and cry out to Him. Lift up your need to Him. Pour out your heart to Him. Call upon Him. Look to Him. Depend on Him. Receive from Him. Drink from Him. It's no accident that Jesus continually said things like, Come to me. I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of living waters. We come because he's our source. We lift up absolutely everything to him. So do that every day. Identify all your need, all your fear, all your weaknesses, all your failures, all your sorrow, all your hurt, all your sin, all your emptiness, all your praise, all your joys, absolutely everything. Lift it up to him in prayer. Ask him for grace for today. Ask him for help. He loves it. God is not bothered by our coming to him. He is thrilled. Did you know that? God loves it. When you come to him like a little child just rolling your cares and your anxieties and your concerns into his lap or onto his shoulders and asking him to take care of everything. So much so that he goes out of his way repeatedly in Scripture to command us to do that very thing. He commands us to cast our anxieties upon him because he wants us to. He wants us to not bear the burden for those of you who have children, I can imagine that we don't have, I don't have children yet, but 
you don't want your child to bear the cares and anxieties of the world. You just want them to be happy and feel safe, and I'll take care of it, right? God is like that, but so much more. A father who knows every hair on our head, and he cares for you. He loves being called upon and needed. Psalm 50, verse 15, God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. See, the real problem here is that many of us don't often do this, do we? We don't really, day by day, depend upon him. We don't consistently call on his name. We often go about most of our lives and days with hardly a thought for him. And even if we do spend time in the morning in word and prayer, we're not really embracing the reality that we need him and we depend on him. We pass by so quickly. We think that we're doing just fine without him, not realizing that if he's not strengthening us, all our efforts are in vain. Maybe you recall Psalm 127 when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, unless he's doing the work, the builder labors in vain. There's still a man doing the building, but unless the Lord is the ultimate builder, the work's in vain. If he's not doing the work, if he's not in and behind your work, if you haven't called upon him to uh, supply grace for you, if he's not energizing, so to speak, your labor, then it's in vain. So we devote ourselves to depend upon him. We verbally express our need for him out loud. Do it every day. Let him fill you with his strength. There's really not a single thing that we should ever do without, at least in some level, acknowledging our need for him to do the work. Remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do some things, right? Apart from me, you can do what? Absolutely nothing. And that is a blanket statement. We really, really do need him. So we call upon him continually, even with cup full and spilling over. We are justified. We are children of God. And we call upon him so that we can do all the strength by the do all by the strength that he supplies so that he gets the glory. This is what it means to live by faith. This is the character that vital ingredient to true Christian worship, fail to miss out on that core aspect and your human effort is worthless. It's not pleasing to God. It is not pleasing to God for you to get up and say, okay, God, what can I muster of my own work and independence to please you? He is not honored by that. And we see just briefly here that the psalmist adds two more items, but really, when you think about it, they're just a product of what we've seen so far. Every act of worship toward God must be done by the strength that he supplies, which we've seen, including the next two things, which are obedience and thanksgiving. Verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This simply means that he'll do what he said he'll do. 
vows were a common thing in that day and culture. A vow is simply a promise. The, the psalmist is saying, I'll keep my word. I will obey my God and honor him as I said I'll do. And this is the essence of obedience, is it not? As believers, we've given ourselves to God and said, Lord, I will follow you. I will obey you. You are my king. You are my God. But praise the Lord that the strength that you need to obey him isn't from you. It also is a gift of grace. So that's why I think the psalmist puts the first response, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. Then he talks about paying his vows. The third thing the psalmist identifies is in verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. When we remember and recount all of his grace, namely verses 1 to 11, when we come every Sunday morning to sing his praises, we recount all that he's done. We remember the significance and detail of what he has already accomplished for us. And we respond in heartfelt gratitude. Again, he's exalted because at root what's happening is we're magnifying him as the source of our joy. Everything that we have is from him. And we continually recount that over and over. And it brings our hearts joy and it brings him honor. And I love, I just, I just love, I love how that works. I mean, it is so utterly and uniquely Christian, utterly opposite to all the world and human nature. With God, it's the opposite of the bank. We have a debt, and he's poured out incredible blessing upon us. And the only way we have of uh, discharging our debts, as it were, is to ask for more. That's how it works. God says, I, I give all this to you, and how do you respond? And we say, more. That doesn't pay back. It just means we get deeper and more and more indebted to grace. Forever. It doesn't stop. A thousand years, a million years from now, you are far more indebted to grace than you ever were. And it won't turn the other direction. Forever. It is all of grace. It is it is utterly unique in this world. So in so doing, we continually increase our debts, and yet both the debtor, us, and the creditor, God, as it were, are both satisfied. God is glorified in supplying our needs. We glorify him by joyfully receiving and depending upon him and then walking in obedience and thanksgiving. An old hymn, I think, summarizes it perfectly. It says, The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. I'll say that again. The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts, from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. So now you remember, at the beginning of the message, we spoke of a melody and how in just a few notes you knew the song. What about Psalm 116? This 
Song of the Redeemed. Do you know it? Is the melody familiar to you? The melody of the Christian life is indeed radical, faith-filled love for God. That should be immediately, ought to be, we're not perfect, but it ought to be the character of the Christian life that people see quite quickly. That this person loves God, depends on Him. So it's this song, your story, is it true of you? Does the melody resonate with your own heart? Have you known the redeeming grace of God? Have you been rescued by His love? And don't, don't always just assume it. Continue to examine yourself. There's a simple test. Just ask the question, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Ask yourself that sincerely. Do you love him? Can you say from your heart with the psalmist, I love the Lord. I don't mean I go to church and I read my Bible and I do all these things. Do you love him? This is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Love for God. Those who belong to him do love him. If you do not love Jesus then listen to God's own words in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. It says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. These are, these are God's words. If anyone has no love for the Lord, whoever does not love him, let him be damned. Shocking to hear, isn't it? If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned. Why? Because to not love Jesus is the greatest crime. He is worthy, so, so worthy of our love. To look upon him and to declare, and sorry, to look upon him and to not love him is to declare that he is worthless and it is the worst of sins. To love him, on the other hand, is the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So if you can say yes to that question this morning, if you love him, then praise the Lord. Pour out that love for him. Call upon his name. If you can't say that this morning, if you don't love him or you're not sure, I plead just one thing. Come to him. Don't delay. Come to Jesus. Come to his wide open, everlasting arms of love and receive his life. Remember that without Jesus, there is nothing but wrath which awaits you. So don't delay. He offers life and forgiveness absolutely free. 
Whoever comes to him will never hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. He is the fountain of living waters. He does not require that we first figure out our mess before coming to him. He requires that we bring our mess to him. He requires that we come to him broken and empty and desperate. He requires that we come to him as sinners in need of rescue. He longs to satisfy us and shower us in his love. Spurgeon said, rightly so, it is the heaven of Christ's soul to save sinners. Come to such a gracious Redeemer. Come to him and cast yourself into arms of mercy. Call upon his name and he will redeem you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty and richness and wonder of your word and that we're continually astounded by the depths of grace and the cup of salvation that you have given to us and that we are so filled with delight and joy and all that you have done for us. So Father, as a, I pray that from what we've learned this morning that you would strengthen us to daily go and come to you to depend upon you and to call upon your name. May we see ourselves as little children before such a gracious and wonderful Father and that you desire for us to cast all our anxieties upon you as our way of worshiping you. So may we do that and, and apply it to our lives. And we thank you for this time together to exalt in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.